unless they're forced to, people do not want to talk about the dangers that nuclear arms pose. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, uh, did you watch the debate that was earlier this week as we're recording this podcast? It was the first debate between Trump and Clinton. Did you watch any of that? Oh, yes, with friends. <laughs> uh-huh. It's good to have a support group in a stressful time like that. I heard it was the most watched debate, or one of the most watched debates must have been of all time, right? Yeah, in fact, uh, the, all the news networks were calling it the Super Bowl. <laughs> the Super Bowl. <laughs> of debates. And yeah. it was on 11 different channels. I was moving boxes around in the office here, boxes of books which our office serves also as a staging area for our books. So I've often had to rearrange things around here. So I was moving, lifting big, heavy boxes of books around, and I sort of had the debate on the computer screen in the background. And I thought that was a good activity to be doing while the debate was running because it sort of mitigated some of the feelings that I might have had otherwise watching this. Oh, you can get to see all of Trump's wonderful facial expressions and Hillary shimmying. She shimmied, and uh, I hear Trump sniffed. <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, they used a lot of words. In the follow-up to the debate, I got attracted to some of the uh, analysis of the communication. Uh, I didn't realize this, but the New York Times ran a piece about Webster's Dictionary on their Twitter feed, has been tracking how many lookups they've had for various words uh-huh. along the way. And so during the debate, uh, do you know what the most looked up word was during the debate? Nope. Braggadocious. Oh, yes. Braggadocious. <laughs> now, they said braggadocious is such an old word that it no longer appears in the dictionary. <laughs> so a lot of people, including me... Oh, he didn't just make it up, huh? Yeah, a lot of people, including me, thought, wait a minute, ah, uh, he's making this up. Of course, braggadocio, that's something that's still around, but uh, this is expibraggadocious. <laughs> I didn't know that word, braggadocious. But according to Webster's, it's too old to still appear in the dictionary. Um, some of the other words that were looked up were um, temperament, because Donald Trump bragged. <laughs> he, maybe he said not to be braggadocious, but my temperament is my best quality <laughs> or something like that. I'm not sure where that came in in the debate. But anyway, his uh, his description of himself as his best quality, having a great temperament, which is a little misused. But yeah, uh, there was a lot of misused language in Trump's speech. <laughs> And a lot of people came up with variations on the song from Mary Poppins with things like super callous, fragile, egocentric, braggadocious. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, another word that was looked up a lot during the debate was stamina. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure why people had to look that one up. It seems common enough to me you wouldn't run to the dictionary. But I think some of these lookups might be... Um, people trying to perform their own little 
language punditry. Now, wait a minute. How are they using stamina? How are they using temperament? Let me look that up in the dictionary. What is braggadocious? Let me look this up. And uh, in my own mind, anyway, I can create this uh, story about how they use language incorrectly. Maybe that's part of it. I'm not sure. Another analysis that I saw was not related to language, but there was a New York Times journalist who was assigned to watch the entire debate with the sound off. I read that. <laughs> and uh, he had his his own little take on it, which was also a pretty interesting write-up. So there's communication in language. There's the visual communication, of course. But we're mainly interested in language. What did you pick up from the debate? I think you just picked up his sniff there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will admit, I'm feeling a little something this morning. Uh, yeah, I'm probably not fit to be president, but I never said that I was. <laughs> so what did you pick up from the debate? Well, one of the interesting exchanges to me was um, when Trump was asked about his attitudes toward nuclear weapons. Now, there's a background to this that I think was in everybody's mind, but didn't actually get mentioned in the debate, which is the story that came out a few weeks ago about and this was like third hand reporting. But supposedly when Trump was given his first security briefing as a nominated candidate for president, uh, he kept asking about nuclear weapons when he could use them. You know, was it the president's decision alone? And, and uh, the uh, people briefing him in the military were and the political side or the uh, administrative side of things were really kind of shocked about his casual sort of attitude and he's he suggested of course that uh, if uh, Germany and Japan want to uh, be protected they shouldn't be under our nuclear umbrella they should build their own and maybe it's okay if North Korea and Iran have uh, nuclear weapons um, you know he's made all kinds of loose nukes comments that terrify a lot of people Maybe not as many as should be terrified. So he knew that all this was floating around, that he was being viewed as somebody who could be very dangerous to hand over the, the nuclear football, as it's called, which is actually just a set of codes. And so when he was asked, he, he had a prepared answer, which was to say that nuclear weapons were a real big, serious, serious problem and a major danger. And, you know, I forget the exact words he used, something he has never talked about before in public, the danger of the arms race. In fact, everything he said before seemed to indicate that he utterly dismissed that idea. And Clinton, of course, chimed in. And so I would say that was one in which he tried to sidestep an issue um, by coming up with a more sensible answer. But for people who have been listening to him consistently, it was not terribly reassuring. But it struck me because this is a topic that I happen to know a lot about and care a lot about. And uh, I'm, I'm quite worried about his attitude toward nuclear weapons. But one of the things he was criticizing Obama for was not having um, built up and uh, revitalized our nuclear weapons. Um, and, of course, one of the main things that the left has criticized Obama for is pushing for revitalizing our atomic weaponry and testing new versions of things and so on. So um showed him being out of touch with the facts as usual. But uh, 
there was no serious discussion of the issue. Both of them were saying, this is extremely important. This is something that is vital. And then they pivoted away from it almost immediately. And that is typical of the whole history of the nuclear era, that unless they're forced to, people do not want to talk about the dangers that nuclear arms pose. And there's a lot of reasons for that, which... I spent a lot of time exploring back in the 1980s. There is a whole aspect of it that's in the imagination. And I think that, you know, the little icon of the the atom that was produced in the 50s showing that iconography and how that proliferated, that was an interesting phenomenon. And that, this is the very beginning. This was just after developing the nuclear bomb. Um, I think there's an aspect of it that has captured people's imagination, but the reality, the kind of severe reality of it that, you know, we see, we can still see the footage of the, luckily till now, the only nuclear weapons that have been dropped. Um, we can see the absolute horror. Everybody wants to turn away from that, but uh, there is this whole other part of it in the imagination of something that is, it's almost like a Frankenstein, right? Where you can't look away from it. Uh, in a way, but it will destroy you if you get too close. You'd be surprised how well people can look away from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, I have frequently seen people say, thank goodness nuclear weapons have never been used in warfare. <laughs> okay. I've seen that from journalists. I've seen it in books. Mm. Um, and you have to jog their elbow and say, <clears throat> Oh, my. No. <laughs> the United States is the only country that's ever used nuclear weapons in warfare, and it was at the end of World War II in Japan. Well, it's amazing that you would have to remind anybody of that. But, you know, well, here we are. That's where we are. So before we set off on um, exploring this topic in any detail, um, let's just once more revisit something we've talked about before, and that's the pronunciation of the word nuclear. Oh, yes. Uh, nuclear has to do with the nucleus of atoms, and it's not nuclear. Most people seem to find pronouncing nuclear very difficult, and the vast majority of time when you ask people who are not specialists or experts, it'll come out nuclear. So much so that some dictionaries have now accepted nuclear as an alternative pronunciation. And as I've said before, the problem with this is if you're in an audience, you're speaking to an audience where people care about the traditional scientific pronunciation of the word, you make yourself less credible by saying nuclear. So if you're debating, for instance, on whether we should reduce nuclear arms and you have a military person or a scientist uh, opposite you and you're an activist and if you say nuclear, you just immediately label yourself as somebody whose opinion is not worth listening to. So I think it's worth pursuing. Sometimes it takes practice. Um, I had one colleague who actually worked quite a bit on this subject himself. And I worked with him and worked with him. And eventually he could pronounce nuclear. But if he was not thinking about it, it would come out nuclear every time. Most of our presidents have said nuclear. Obama is a nice exception. Jimmy Carter. Well, uh, now... 
I might have been focused on lifting some particularly heavy box of books at the moment that they were talking about this issue. And I guess they did not talk about it very long in the debate. But uh, how did Donald and Hillary pronounce it? Do we know? I think they came out right in that case, nuclear. Okay. So that's a little bit of influence. The interest in nuclear weapons waxes and wanes. Um, it's something that gets forced on people's attention. It's not something that becomes a fad um, because it is, it's so horrific in people's minds that it doesn't bear thinking about for a long time uh, with close attention for most people. And the crucial period for me was the 1980s. Uh, when Ronald Reagan was being extremely belligerent uh, to the Soviet Union and uh, trying to uh, intimidate them by not only building a um, uh, an improved nuclear missile force, but to expand missiles into Europe, which were very frightening to the Russians and uh, would be very much the same as the Russians having put missiles in Cuba to frighten us. And he was also interested in building an anti-missile technology, which made the whole idea of deterrence uh, questionable. That is, we could successfully shoot down their missiles and they didn't have the same technology. They would be vulnerable to a takeout strike from us. And it was um, American policy for a long time that we would not promise not to use nuclear weapons as a first strike. That is, we reserve the right to not just retaliate, but to be the first to use nuclear weapons. And Richard Nixon uh, was the one who really used that and several times in various crises uh, wanted it known that um, – if the North Vietnamese didn't shape up, for instance, to what he wanted, he was going to nuke their country. His military advisors and political advisors around him were horrified and usually managed to distract him or suppress it in one way or another, so it didn't come out. Now, before we get too far from Reagan, we should also point out not only were there expanding nuclear weapons in Europe and uh, talking about interrupting missile strikes aimed at the U.S., this was going to involve weapons in space as well. Yes, yeah, space-based weapons. And I recently uh, had started watching the uh, series The Americans. You know about that? I do know the series, but I have not watched it. I hadn't watched it, and it, it's gotten such great praise all over the place. I decided to check it out on Netflix, and I watched the first season. And they have a very interesting episode in which – uh, the Russians hear that the Americans are planning a successful anti-missile program. And so they begin to think that this means the America is ready to attack. And the Americans hear some feedback from the Russians that make them think that the Russians are ready to attack. And it winds up by both sides uh, conducting a sort of underground war, killing each other's agents. There's a lot more bloodshed in the Americans than I think actually went on in history among spy versus spy. But um, it illustrates the paranoia of the period, the way that these threats being flung around really are very dangerous. There's a famous instance in Russian history, and I forget the date, in which um, the Russia's radar detected what it thought was a nuclear attack coming on and the Kremlin was ready to launch the missiles and it was one 
general who examined it and says, let's wait just a minute and see for sure. And it turned out, I think, to be a flock of geese. And people have been pointing to that and say, do you really want Trump to be the one in charge? He's over and over said that he's the best military advisor, that he wants to have absolute control. You know, um, That's what makes this whole thing scary. But anyway, back to Reagan. So during that period, there were many demonstrations in Europe, especially college students out in the streets and in this country. There was a lot of upsurge of fear and interest of the increasing arms race. And the the result of that was that it leaked over into popular culture. And there a way that I think is especially true of young people, but it's true of a lot of people. If you have a great fear, you trivialize it in any way you can. And what happened is that uh, fiction and movies and cartoons and songs and all kinds of things began to take on these nuclear weapon imagery. And I actually did an op-ed piece for the New York Times in which I discussed this whole phenomenon of nuclear chic. And one of the things I did is ask a student in one of my classes to just sit down, and this is at the time when MTV was still showing music videos nonstop, and just keep track for a whole day of how often a nuclear explosion, a mushroom cloud, appeared in an MTV video. There was a average of about one an hour. People were wearing T-shirts that said, nuke them till they glow. Uh, there were, you know, all kinds of uh, playing around with things nuclear. And as somebody who had been concerned about nuclear proliferation since I was in high school, I felt I had to do something. And the something I could do was literary. So um, the first thing I did was to put together a gathering of professors in my department uh, entitled the, the uh, event, The Bomb and the Arts. And we had a Chinese-born poet who had written a poem on Hiroshima, which is quite interesting because most Chinese traditionally, as victims of the Japanese invasion, had no sympathy for the Japanese suffering in the war. I'm glad to see it end. Um, but he was very concerned about the influence of the bomb, not only in Hiroshima, but on the world thereafter. And another of my colleagues uh, did a, a piece on uh, nuclear weapons and radiation and monster movies in the 1950s. Um, and there were a couple of other things. And I did a short paper on nuclear war and science fiction. And I thought, you know, I could get half a dozen or dozen titles together and thought that might be something to explore. So I did my little piece, and afterwards I said, well, what else could I do with this? And I started looking around, and the long and short of it is that after 10 years, I had found over 1,400 short stories, novels, and plays written in English or translated into English that depicted a nuclear war or a nuclear bomb going off in warfare or its aftermath. And this was not including nuclear tests gone wrong or accidental explosions or almost nuclear wars like thrillers where somebody threatens to set off a bomb but they don't actually do it so it was it was a huge project and it consumed a very large part of my life and uh, led to a lot of publication and and speaking and so on so i thought i'd explore a little bit of that today and what i found in 
going through all of that. Well, that sounds great. Let's get started, yeah. The Bomb in the Arts program was in 1982, and um, one of the things I had to do was go back and look at earlier times and see how did the public become aware of nuclear weaponry. And the interesting thing was that even before the atomic bomb was a concept, by the way, I'm using atomic and nuclear interchangeably. That's um, not accurate in physics terms, but for referring to weapons, it'll do. Um, it's radiation, of course, was known about before the idea of the splitting of the atom and when radium was discovered. So by 1895, there were people saying, hmm, there, maybe we could make a weapon out of this stuff. And you get all these stories in which uh, radioactive rays of one kind or another are being used as weapons. And radioactive dust sprinkled around. Uh, most of these are fairly obscure, but there's one that's usually thought of as the earliest, although it's not the earliest with nuclear weapons, but it's the earliest that is something like what we think about today. In 1913, H.G. Wells wrote The World Set Free. It's a fantasy uh, of uh, creating world peace through atomic domination. Now, um, Wells was uh, sort of a leftist of a peculiar sort. He believed in world government. It was very much against uh, nations fighting each other and causing trouble. But he often had the he, he, he didn't have a lot of faith in the common people. Let's put it that way. And the notion of moving by democratic means toward world government uh, didn't seem very plausible to him. But instead of looking for democratic socialism, he tended to lean toward some meritocracy taking over and, you know, dissolving all the world's governments and um, creating a better society. And in this one, it's in the wake of a nuclear war. Um, so the weapon, having demonstrated its destructive capacities, frightens everybody ultimately. You know, Ronald Reagan uh, picked up on this theme by saying, well, maybe if the Martians invaded, we could all unite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. um, he's also known to have been influenced by uh, a movie he was in in which uh, anti-missile weapons were used. To think that that might be plausible, he sometimes got his fiction mixed up with his facts. But anyway, Wells' uh, book, which was published in 1914, just as World War One broke out, uh, led to this idea of peace through atomic domination. And this is what I call muscular disarmament. Um, this is a variation on a, the term muscular Christianity, and you can look that up if you want. But it had its roots also in people like Alfred Nobel, the inventor of TNT, who thought this is a terrible weapon, um, but it's so powerful that it surely will bring about world peace because it's too awful to imagine that it would be used freely and of course he's the founder of the nobel priest prize so uh, before world war ii um, there was not much written in fiction about atomic weapons just scattered things here and there and some interesting ones popping up in comic books during world war ii which um, i didn't study in any detail but they're kind of surprising but in the the leading science fiction magazine of that era was astounding 
Astounding Science Fiction, edited by John Campbell, a very influential editor. He was not a passive editor. He would tell people the kinds of stories he wanted and, and sometimes even hand them a plot and say, turn this into a story. And he was very interested in the whole idea of radiation and so on. The idea that the atom could be split, that it was a possible source of energy, was known before the war publicly and uh, had been talked about. So it was not a secret, but of course the general public had been paying very little attention. But science fiction fans were very interested in it. They were always interested in cutting edge technology. So what happens is that uh, during the war, uh, he continues to publish these stories in which uh, usually in battles with aliens, nuclear weapons are being used until finally uh, a story is published that comes a little too close to what the FBI thinks is proper. Meaning that the FBI thinks that they have, in their fiction, have come too close to... And they can tell them, okay, shut this down. <laughs> yeah, okay, interesting. And uh, the fact is that other magazines have all been told, don't publish stories about, you know, splitting the atom and the possibility of nuclear weapons. Although... Colliers, I think, uh, before the war, shortly before the war, had done an article. It was all there in the public domain. It could be found in any public library. But um, they were trying to keep anything like that from coming in print. And the story is, and this is hard to believe, but it's been repeated and investigated over and over, that when they visited Campbell, he said, look, I readers are used to reading about nuclear weapons. They pop up all the time. If I suddenly stop publishing this kind of story, they're going to notice they're going to think that something is up. Which is a good point. Conspicuous in its absence, it would be. So he continued to publish some stories with that kind of theme. And now um, you can read my book. My book is called Nuclear Holocausts in the plural. Uh, the first edition was published by Kent State University Press, but um, when I did many more editions to it, I eventually uh, needed to have a second edition, and they weren't interested in doing a second edition. So I got permission to put the whole thing up as expanded online. So on my website, we'll put a link to it. So if you're interested in any of the details of this, uh, you can read about it there. But during World War II, Campbell did these various stories, but then after the war, um, the immediate reaction of most Americans was to celebrate, to say, wow, the two bombs in Japan prevented the deaths of thousands of, uh, maybe tens of thousands of soldiers uh, having to invade on foot into Japan to overturn the uh, military-led government there. And so what we're ushered into is an age of great possibility where uh, power will be too cheap to meter and we'll all be driving around atomic-powered cars and flying in atomic-powered airplanes. And um, it was a, quite a giddy feeling. There was this undertone of, of fear, but there was a tendency to emphasize the upside. But as time went on, uh, science fiction writers in particular who tried to always challenge the mainstream in their thinking. It, it became a dominant theme in the late 50s, early 60s for science fiction to kind of shed optimism and uh, ask, well, if we had a certain innovation in society, either technical or social, uh, what could go wrong? <laughs> Instead of how could we solve it? It was always what could go wrong. 
and there became to be more and more novels and stories about uh, nuclear weapons as a disaster to the point that Campbell finally got fed up with it and started discouraging him. And, um, and that really coincided with the decline of Astounding as a magazine. And a couple of upstarts took over fantasy and science fiction and Galaxy. Those were the dominant science fiction magazines in the, in the 50s when I was started reading this sort of stuff. And they often published nuclear-themed things. Now, one writer that I happen to know personally, not extremely well, but I've, I've met him. I've had tea with him at his house in Oxford, is Brian Aldous. Um, Aldous is not one of the big names in science fiction that a lot of people know because he, for one thing, he is an experimentalist and he's always changing the way he writes and his subjects. He doesn't go down one path like, say, Terry Pratchett and just write one Discworld novel after another. If you like one Brian Aldous novel, you may not like another. Uh, but he's extremely intelligent and very inventive and, and imaginative. And he was a soldier with the British Army in Burma at the time of the Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki bombings. And he was um, really elated to hear that the war had been won. He was surprised to hear about the bombs, but uh, glad they existed, glad the United States had used them. And that was a very common feeling among soldiers and among the public in general, I would say. Um, however, he was interesting to me particularly because over time, uh, his attitudes evolved in order to um, be worried about nuclear weapons and in particular fallout. Now, when the initial reactions to Hiroshima, uh, in particular in, in John Hersey's book, which was published in The New Yorker and was the first real depiction of what a nuclear bomb could do to a population, when that first came out, the concern was the immediate blast effects. Uh, of course, the obliteration of things, the burns, and uh, they call prompt radiation. It really took quite a while later before people began to worry about the delayed effects of fallout. And that accumulated as testing programs continued, where bomb tests were taken out, where finding radioactive iodine in milk and uh, tissues and so on. So um, Aldous eventually wrote a novel called Greybeard in which he depicts the sterilization of the human race by fallout and then Heliconia Winter, um, which dealt with nuclear winter. And um, I'll tell the story uh, in more detail about that next time. But he, for me, typifies um, the evolution that a lot of people went through as they began to think about nuclear weapons in different ways. Yes. But it's interesting that to think about nuclear weapons as a threat for Americans and, and British alike was um, something they didn't concentrate much at all until they realized they might be damaging themselves through the fallout. And that changed the whole attitude toward nuclear weapons. Well, we still have a lot to go on this topic. We have uh, famous works that people forget include discussions of nuclear war. We have radioactive superheroes coming up. We have all kinds of various ways that this can go. But I'd like to set it aside for next time and uh, get back to all of this next week. Okay, great. We'll talk to you then. 
That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.